Well, I'm happy to be here. Thank you for the invitation to speak. I was watching the news on Friday, Channel 5. The news guy says it's a slow news day. We have a story about a cat being rescued out of a tree. He's been up there for 10 days, hasn't had water or food. The fireman came, rescued the cat. I thought this is a good news day. That was the best news story in the whole program. I'm going to talk today about Buddhism and the essence of Buddhism. And it's a little difficult if you don't know what Buddhism is all about, so I'm going to share with you my understanding of Buddhism in 20 minutes. The Buddha was a cool guy. He was a prince. His father wanted to take him to take over the family business. And yet, he had a spiritual aspect that needed to be resolved. He could have been a great world leader or a great spiritual leader. And he chose spiritual. In his first talk, he sort of laid it out for us Buddhists. He says, you know, in your life, you're going to be ultimately dissatisfied. It's not going to really turn out the way you think it's supposed to turn out. The way you would like it to turn out. And I have found the answer to that. And it's not about changing the world. The world is ultimately unsatisfactory and will always be so. But we can change our inner world. We can change the way we experience the world. Now, he said, in order to change the way you experience the world, you need to change your karma. And karma has sort of a mystical, mystical reputation. What goes around comes around, which was one of my favorite bumper stickers. But that's not really the kind of karma the Buddha was talking about. He said karma consists of three things. What we think, what we say, and what we do. We need to change that. We need to change how we think. We need to change what we say and what we do. When you become an official Buddhist, you take something called the five precepts. The five precepts allow you to change your speech karma and your action karma. First precept, not to take life. I will practice not taking life. How hard is that? It's so difficult. Now, we can avoid killing humans most of the time. We can avoid killing lions and tigers and bears most of the time. But when it gets down to mosquitoes and ants, cockroaches and spiders, we don't give it a second thought. They're in our space. And it's so much easier to kill them than to catch them and take them outside and allow them to have their little life. So as a Buddhist, when we take that precept, I will train myself not to take life. And it requires great patience and insight into the value of life. Second precept, I will take, I will not take what is not given. It's different than stealing. If it's not given to you, even if it's available to you, it's not yours. And this can be really confusing because we have become consumers of America. And we're going into the greatest consumption of the year, 
Christmas. We're spending thousands, if not millions of dollars on stuff that may have no value at all, which is okay. It keeps the economy rolling along. And we know that we own stuff because every time we buy something, they give us a receipt and the ownership is transferred to us. And we feel so good about that, don't we? Look what I own. Look at all the stuff I own. And I would say to you, the ones with the most stuff, do you even own yourself? Do you even own what you say and do? Or what you think about? Or does it just sort of happen? The other day I was reflecting on my ownership and I looked in the mirror. And I said to myself, if I owned me, I wouldn't look like this. I'd be looking a lot better, whatever better is. But I don't own me. I don't even own my life. One day it'll just be taken away, either by mistake or by longevity or whatever. So how can I think I own the mandolin that I was playing yesterday? I was just using it until somebody wants it more than I do or until it doesn't work anymore or until I lose interest or until the new model comes out. Wow. No sexual misconduct. Love and kindness. What a radical concept that is. In Buddhism, we don't usually have the word love standing alone because it's confusing. Love is just another form of attachment, according to some Buddhists, and it's one of the greatest attachments of all. And if you don't temper that attachment with kindness, you can cause more suffering rather than less suffering. So Buddhism sticks love and kindness next to each other and connects them. And if you don't really have kindness towards the person you love, you don't really love them ultimately anyway not to speak unskillfully four ways that a buddhist can speak unskillfully false speech malicious speech harsh speech gossip and idle chatter those four kinds of speech increase suffering in the world rather than decrease suffering in the world and it's so difficult with speech because it happens so quickly Sometimes as if we didn't even think about what we were going to say. But the Buddha assured us all our thought leads our speech and action into the world. So even if it doesn't feel that you thought about what you were going to say, you did at some level. Now the fifth precept seems to be the hardest precept of all. And this past election made it even harder. The fifth precept, not to consume intoxicants. <laughs> they keep making them legal. <laughs> and what's wrong with getting high? The problem, according to Buddhism, with getting high is it steals all your wisdom. You end up being really stupid. You do dumb things. You increase suffering rather than decrease suffering. And yet, since humans could figure out how to get high, they've always gotten high. Sobriety is a wonderful discipline that will pay off eventually. 
So as we go into the holiday season, right, you know, let's think sober. Let's think love and kindness. Let's think kind words. Let's think no killing. How about those trees? You know, I know people love those Christmas trees. They just cut them down. Love the flowers. They just pluck them and cut them. When I see a Christmas tree, I see a dead tree. When I see flowers that aren't in pots, I see dead flowers. And we're always so happy to get dead flowers as a gift. I don't know what's wrong with us. (laughs) There's a wonderful Lexus commercial. I'm not advocating buying a Lexus. But the family, after Christmas, takes the tree to the forest and replants it. Now I'm thinking, yeah, come on, let's buy living trees and let's put them out in the forest. How many trees have burned over the past month or year or five years? Let's put some more out there. We like trees. They make the air better. They make the sight around us better. So that's where a Buddhist starts. A Buddhist says, I'm going to suffer my whole life. And this can reduce my suffering if I follow these five precepts. And karma has three. The third one is mind, intention, thought process. The five precepts don't really connect to that, but meditation does. So the third way to change your karma is to meditate. Five precepts in meditation. Around the 5th century, there was a monk called Buddha Gosha, and he wrote a book called the Vasudhimaga, The Path of Purification. It's 900 pages. It's a meditation manual that's really boring to read. Only a meditator would find it interesting. And in this book, he says there are two kinds of Buddhist meditation. One is called samatha, tranquility. One is called vipassana, insight. We have 44, 40 kinds of samatha meditation, four kinds of insight, vipassana meditation. We want to transform our mind. We have a problem because we have too much greed, too much hatred, and too much delusion. And meditation will ultimately change our greed into generosity our hatred and anger into love and compassion, our delusion and ignorance into wisdom. We aren't born with original sin, according to Buddhism. We are born with original ignorance. We don't see the world the way it really is. And meditation allows us to transform the way we see the world. Now, I've been practicing for a very long time. I still have a long ways to go. An example I like to use is my greed. I have greed, and it manifests in food for less. When I go buy the cat food for the eight feral cats that I feed twice a day and never get a thank you. I'm in there buying the cat food, and I find myself on the bakery aisle. And there in front of me are eight Hostess cupcakes individually wrapped for under $3. And I say, my, my... My day's going to be good today, and I buy those eight Hostess cupcakes and 40 cans of cat food, and off to the counter I go. And the clerk looks at me and says, are you single? (laughs) Uh, 
I say yes. Now, I ate all eight Hostess cupcakes. If I had been practicing generosity, I would have given some of them away. But no, I'm not there yet. I look in the mirror and say, not a Buddha yet. I'm still eating those cupcakes. So we have different levels of greed. We have different levels of hatred and anger. And we have different levels of delusion and ignorance. My mother used to use anger and hatred as a way of cleaning the house. She would get into an argument with her husband. And then she would clean. Because she had all that extra energy after arguing. Her husband, my stepfather, knew that the results were going to be good. So he just listened and participated in the argument and had a clean house. But sometimes the anger and hatred can take us over. We saw the last political election and, whoa, hatred and anger, man. Delusion and ignorance. We don't see things the way they really are. We see impermanent things as being permanent. We see good things as being bad and bad things as being good. And meditation can allow us to, to fine-tune and come into the, the real aspect of what it means to be a fully realized human being. Number one, tranquility meditation. 40 kinds of meditation. The idea with tranquility meditation is to become enlightened. Not to achieve nirvana, but to become enlightened. Let me give you my definition of enlightenment and my definition of nirvana. Enlightenment, the direct experience of the interconnectedness and interdependence of all phenomena. I'll say it one more time. The direct experience of the interconnectedness and interdependence of all phenomena. That is an enlightenment experience. And it doesn't have to happen in the meditation center. It can happen on the beach or walking through the forest or raking the yard of leaves. What it simply means is we no longer are separate. We reconnect to the universe around us. It embraces us and says, welcome home. When that happens, when that experience happens to us, it changes us forever. We no longer can simply turn away from the hunger and the homelessness. They are us now. We are them. We have found the connection to all things. We have found the connection. So we serve. I can't walk away. Those cats kept finding our backyard. I kept buying more food. Did I want to be a cat lover? Not necessarily. But they're a good bunch of guys and gals. But my primary focus is to reduce their suffering. And if they're hungry and I feed them, they are suffering less. It's a little harder sometimes with humans than it is with dogs and cats, but they need our help even more. So this enlightenment experience, this interconnectedness and interdependence does change the way we look at the world and it tends to balance our intellect with our intuition, our brain with our heart. Now, the Buddha said, if you want to end your suffering forever, 
you need to realize nirvana. Nirvana is an interesting word because the Buddha never really explained what it was. So I'll explain to you what I think it is. Nirvana, the end of suffering, the end of karma, the end of all future rebirth. That last one doesn't seem to get applause when I say it because it almost sounds like nirvana means that we will no longer exist. And why would we be so eager not to exist? Well, it's not that. Let me explain suffering. The end of suffering. What is suffering by definition in Buddhism? Suffering is wanting things to be different than they are. That's all. Pretty simple. We always know it could be better. Now, I woke up today and looked at my hair and said, I'm having a pretty good hair day. It can't get better than this. But there are so many other things that could be better, and every time I hit the 101 or the 405, it's obvious how things could be better. So it's coming to a profound place of acceptance with the way things are, seeing the perfection in every moment. Now, you say, but every moment is not perfect because all those hungry people and homeless people live in those moments that you're seeing perfection in. So do you not help them? Do you not try to assist them? Well, yes, you do, but not because it's not perfect. It's because in this perfection, they are suffering. And your job as a Buddhist is simply to end their suffering, not show them how it's perfect. Because they're not going to see it. I had somebody ask me the other day, but you know, if a person fasts for 10 days, they're not suffering. They're doing it to gain something. But if a person starves for 10 days, they are suffering. So the Buddhist wouldn't help the person that's fasting because everything is just the way it's supposed to be. But the Buddhist would help the person that's starving because it could be different, not because it's not perfect. The end of karma. Why would we be interested in the end of karma when I just talked about how to make our karma better and to suffer less? The problem with the Buddhist and karma is karma migrates lifetime to lifetime. We don't necessarily have a soul or a spirit or an independent energy that goes lifetime to lifetime. It's our karma. It's like the wake behind a boat. And the boat sinks, and the wake continues and connects to another boat. And the journey goes on and on. We have found in reflection on all the past lifetimes we've lived, which turns out to be in, infinite, that every time we were born, we got sick. We got old, if we were lucky enough, and we always died. And we cried because all the people around us died as well. And all our friends and pets and family members died. And our tears could fill the oceans of the earth because of all the pain and suffering we've experienced. And it happens every time we are reborn. 
So we would rather not be reborn. We would rather exist because of karma and not because, pardon me, we would rather exist because of nirvana and not because of birth. Exist because of nirvana. So see, creation is oftentimes argued and looked at as a wonderful thing, but if you have creation, you always have destruction. If you have a beginning, you always have an end. But if you can figure out how to exist without creation, then there doesn't need to be an end. And the Buddha said, nirvana is unborn and undying. If you can achieve nirvana while you're alive or even after you're dead, you will exist because of it and not because of birth. And you will not have to die. So I look at it as this parallel universe. All these nirvana people who are going to be there forever and me changing rapidly day after day, month after month, heading towards my demise so I can be reborn again, so I can suffer again, so I can find the Dharma again, so I can think about realizing nirvana again and ending that cycle of birth and death, birth and death. Now they say you can build a practice. And if you're a Christian or Jew, Muslim, Hindu, whatever, you're building a practice. We would call it a practice. You have rites and rituals. You have things that you do. I experience today. It's wonderful. It's a spiritual connection. But those things can't save you. They simply give you something to do according to Buddhism. So the Buddha said you need to create conditions necessary for the realization of nirvana. Now that just blew me away when I read that because it means that nirvana is always there available to us if we come to a place of realization. We can't travel there. We can't read a road map to get there because we're already there. So if I wanted to be in Newberry Park today and I looked at the Google map and here I am standing in it, I'd get very confused. But I'm already here. How can I get here again? I can't get here again. So the Buddha said, every morning we wake up. Nirvana is when you wake up twice in one day. The word Buddha means one who is awake. He woke up. He never had to suffer again. He allowed us to find and realize our nirvana because of what he taught and how he did it. If he was standing next to me right now on this stage, he couldn't do it for any of us. It doesn't work that way. We have to do it ourselves, according to Buddhism. Now, around the first century, Mahayana Buddhism arose in the world and said, well, you know what? There are bodhisattvas. There are Buddhist saints. Avalokiteshvara also known as Kuan Yin, Manjushri, they can help you. Did they ever exist on earth? Probably not. But they're transcendental saints found in Buddhism that can assist you. And if you ever come to our meditation center, we have some of them on our altar. And people say, do you pray to them? Will they really help you? 
I like to think of it this way. They are mirrors. Kuan Yin, the Bodhisattva of compassion, is a mirror. Every time I'm looking at her, I'm seeing my potential. Manjushri, the Bodhisattva of ultimate wisdom, every time I look at him, I'm seeing that in me. All this stuff is in here already, but nobody ever told me how to look inside. They only told me how to look outside for all the answers. My spiritual path, Buddhism, has allowed me to start looking inside and realizing it's always been there. Everything I ever needed spiritually has always been there. I just didn't have access to it. I didn't have the code. It was encrypted, and through practice, karmic practice, five precepts, and meditation, the code is becoming more obvious. And there is a thread that links all the Buddhist talks throughout the eons. Everything the Buddha has ever said has been connected to everything else he said. And when you find the thread, it becomes so obvious. Now, the essence of Buddhism. What the heck? After explaining all this stuff, does anybody have a clue what the essence of Buddhism could be? It's so confusing to be a human being. I am known for oversimplification. I'm going to simplify it for you right now. The essence of Buddhism is compassion and wisdom. The essence of Buddhism is compassion and wisdom. Those are the two wings that allow the bird of Buddhism to fly. And those two aspects in your life will allow you to achieve your own personal realization. You become your own refuge. And you will never have to suffer again. But because everybody else is, you will be busy until you take your last breath. We've had Buddhism in the world for 2,600 years. I think we have more people suffering than ever before. It's become important now that Buddhism is made available. And thankfully, Amazon.com exists. 10,000 books a lot of them immediately transferred to your Kindle to give you something to read and practice and understand and then ultimately have to give up because all those books are only the finger pointing, not what it's pointing at. Thank you for listening to me. I hope what I had to say was meaningful, educational, and entertaining. So now, I brought my harmonica with me. Because sometimes when I speak, people get depressed. <laughs> and, and I don't want to leave with everybody being depressed. So I'm going to play a little blues. And people say, well, why do you play the blues? And I say, what else would a Buddhist play? 